0: Our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
1: The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaBusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com.
3: This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor.
4: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Well, just to remind you that, again, that Chen Lin has had a phenomenal track record, he did turn $5,400 of one account that he manages uh, for his wife's retirement. Uh, he turned that from $5,400 in 2003, January of 2003, to $1.8 million at the end of March this year. Uh, Chen is uh, very often a guest on this show. He's not available today, but I hope to make some comments uh uh, perhaps at the latter end of today's show about some of his favorite stocks. Also, Roger Wiegand, my other partner, is scheduled to be with me for a few minutes at the end of today's show. And uh, as i like to remind you, we do have an introductory offer for first-time subscribers to all three of those newsletters. Call Claudio Bossi to learn more about that in New York at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, or go to miningstocks.com miningstocks.com for uh, to learn about that and you can also go to J taylor media that's jay taylormedia.com to access this radio show as well as everything else that i do and my partners do also i'd like to remind you that you can follow me on twitter my handle there is uh, on twitter is SilverStocks. well i want to thank each of you for listening to this show making it the number one show on the voice america business channel um, before i go any further i want to i want to also uh, thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable and our sponsors for the first hour of today's show uh, are american bonanza eurasian minerals prophecy platinum and rye patch gold um Our main guests today uh, are going, we'll have two of them, they'll be on together. Adrian Day, who has been on the show before, uh, will be with us. And Paul Van Eden, he's a brilliant investor who pays us his first visit today. Both of these gentlemen will be joining me at approximately 3.30 New York time and we and they will be with me for a full hour with one commercial break in between. One of the things I try to do on this show is to have people on that have something unique to say. I'm interested in people who do their own thinking rather than regurgitating PAP from the mainstream media. Both Paul van Eden and Adrian are very much independent thinkers, so we will want to pick their brains on some very important issues facing investors uh, to begin with. We're going to talk about China uh, and try to get a sense of what their' feeling is about the power of China to help the Western world out of its uh, current economic malaise. So will it continue to be a stimulus? Uh, well, we'll try to see what they have to say. There'll be much more to talk to Adrian and Paul about as well, um, a host of other issues that I think are very, very pertinent to investing in uh, the world that we're li- uh, living in today. Today, as I look at the markets, they've become increasingly volatile, we're looking at gold down $34.60. The Dow is down 106 a few minutes ago. I see it's bouncing back a bit. S&P down 11 and NASDAQ down 15 So a pretty rough day for a lot of the equities in the market today. I would like to remind you also of a conference uh, that I'm going to be speaking at, uh, along with Roger Wiegand, uh, Arch Crawford, Ian McAvity, Jim Lyles, uh, Sinclair Knoll. These are people that have been on this show before. Uh, Roger Wiegand will be there as well, and that's in Tempe, Arizona. It's called the Wealth Protection Conference, and it will be on the 27th and 28th of Arizona. And Roger Wiegand will have a special uh, conference or a special seminar the day before that, April 26th. Uh, this is always a really a fun time and a lot of really great speakers. Uh, I can't wait to hear what Arch Crawford and Ian McAvity, Jim Wiles, has to say. Actually, we're going to have Jim Wiles on our show next week to talk about the commodity markets. Uh, to learn more about wealth protection, you can call 800-494-4149. That's 800-494-4149. Or locally, you can call 480-820-5877. Um, then, let's see now... Okay, let me pass along some of the key points, uh, that I made at a, in Calgary last week at the Cambridge House show, uh, a speech that I made there to, uh, to a good number of people. It was a very nice conference, uh, focused more on energy than a lot of the Cambridge House conferences are, being in Calgary, um, Alberta. Uh, I may may need to extend some of these comments next week because uh, I did have a half an hour to speak, and I don't think that I'm going to have anything like a half an hour uh, right now to go through that before uh, we bring on Paul Van Eden and Adrian Day. Um, but I will also be making a plan to make this available as a uh, YouTube slide presentation, so I'll let you know when that's available so uh, that you could um, put some pictures with uh, with the things i'm about to say because as they say a picture is worth a thousand words and we're looking at a lot of at a lot of very uh, important um, charts i think that go into my discussion that really make the point uh, of what i'm trying to say i believe that we are in the bull market of a lifetime uh, for gold and especially for gold mining shares earnings are for sure going up very dramatically for producing gold mining companies, and I hope to present more details on that, if not this week, next week. So that is, I think, the main place you want to be invested in gold and gold shares going forward. Uh, they haven't performed that well recently. Neither has gold or silver performed that well. But from the long-term perspective, I think this is a bull market of a lifetime, and I believe it has quite a ways further to run. Uh, in nominal terms, the gold market started up in about 2002, so it's had 10 straight years of higher prices. That is that is a phenomenal bull market, but uh, in terms of the real price of gold, I think that gold has a long ways to go, or at least will remain very high for some time again, and that is why the gold shares are looking so bullish to me and why the gold mining profits have been surging. Historically, it is obvious, uh, based on Ian Gordon's work uh, and the work of many other people, including Nikolai Kondratiev that we are, that there are, that there exist 60 plus year waves of credit expansion and credit contraction and I believe we are in a major credit contraction now in a cycle that began in a uh, Kondratiev cycle that began in 1949. The system is now however very much breaking down because debt has become so great relative to income and this is uh, what the Kondratiev cycle suggests that there comes a breaking point. Whether countries are on a gold standard or not, uh, people want to believe that they can have something without working for it. So the expansion of the credit system goes to the limits. At some point in time, the the credit can no longer be repaid. Um, these are uh, these are long-term cycles, as I as I suggest and as Ian Gordon's work suggests. began The current one began in 1949 you have an expansion period when times are relatively good and then you push it to the limits and the debt becomes so great it cannot be repaid and then you go into a very strong deflationary environment in which debt has to be repudiated and wiped off the books before growth can continue of course going against that are the policies of the current policies to try to overcome the natural tendencies of those markets um in fact, long-term trends dating back many decades suggest that equities uh, have uh, now probably also reached their upper limits, and so I'm very, very concerned that we could be very close to an equity uh, meltdown as well. So this could also affect the gold shares in the short run, and even as gold profits are rising, and we've seen this since Lehman Brothers, gold prices have been rising, but the gold shares, uh, that is, gold Profits have been rising very dramatically, but the gold shares have not followed suit. We are seeing um, the the main issue here is that debt is growing so much more rapidly than income. In the United States, we have total debt of $57 trillion, so debt is growing exponentially, but income is growing at best in a linear manner, and this is leading to uh, insolvency, growing insolvency. Now in the debt, this could be a much worse situation than we've seen any time in the recent past, uh, probably much worse than the 1930s even because the debt to income is so much greater. If we look at a, uh, a chart going back to the 1920 or 1914 or 1913 when the Federal Reserve was created, uh, we go back to 1932 when that debt to ratio, debt to equity rate, uh, I'm sorry, uh debt to gdp ratio reached 200 about 280%. The normal has been around 125 to 175% in the United States. Uh and so this is uh, we are now at something or closer to 350 or 360, actually closer to 380%. We've come down a little bit from the peak, but we are still way above anything we have ever seen before. In other words, the debt has grown so much more dramatically than it has any time in the past. And I believe this in part is because there are no countries in the world that are under a gold standard and, uh, and also because of financial engineering, uh, derivative products which have convinced people that a lot of the risk has been taken out of the market. And perhaps on a case-by-case basis, that is true. More risk has been taken out of the markets. But basically, uh, I think overall, because of this false sense of security, the system systematic risk has actually increased as a result of the uh, of these uh, financial engineering products now uh, we do have some evidence that in fact the, these are the same policies now that are being carried out that were carried out in the 1930s uh and in fact uh, Murray Rothbard the great Austrian economist has written a book called America's Great Depression in which he he illustrated that Despite the fact that we were on a gold standard during the 1930s, it did not make any difference in terms of, uh, in terms of keeping the Fed from expanding the money supply. And they tried really very hard to increase the money supply, but the problem they had in the 1930s is a similar problem to what we're having now, and that is that in spite of the money put into the banks, the banks were not able to lend it out, not able and willing to lend it out, so the analogy of pushing on a string was made at that point in time, and I believe it is equally applicable now. Uh, we're going to have to go to a commercial break, and when we come back, I'm going to talk a little more about uh, the effects that uh, this ineffective monetary policy is having on the economy and uh, and also explain why I believe this is extremely bullish uh, for gold. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
2: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business
5: Network. In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains, precious metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the Wellgreen Platinum Group metals, nickel, and copper property. A large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit prophecyplat.com.
0: Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters.
1: Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals.
2: Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business.
4: Welcome back to turning hard times into good times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about some of the comments I made in Calgary, picking up from where I left off last segment. And then uh, at the end of this segment, we're going to have Paul Van Eden and Adrian Day join us as our main guest in this week's show. Well, as I said when we went to break, uh, Murray Rothbard, the great Austrian economist, wrote the book America's Great Depression, and he pointed out that the gold standard in the 1930s did not stop the policymakers from trying to pump huge amounts of money into the banking system. So they did, but they were not able to lend it out. And so in spite of all of the efforts to pump money into the system, it was uh, not successful. And historian Burton Folsom, who has been a guest on this show, uh, wrote a book called New Deal or Raw Deal, and he noted that President uh, Roosevelt's own Treasury Secretary, Morgenthau, stated that Uh, after eight years of the administration, they had just as much unemployment as they had when they began, and they had a huge amount of debt to boot. Uh, but despite the historical evidence that the policies of the 1930s did not work, we are now trying to do more of the same, and the same policies, but just more aggressively. In fact, Ben Bernanke said to Milton Friedman before Friedman passed away that he promised him that there would never be another 1930s because this time they 'd get out ahead of it enough they 'd print enough money fast enough, stimulate the economy enough that uh, that uh, that there wouldn 't be a repeat of the 1930s uh, even before the Lehman brothers' failure, which triggered phase one, i believe uh, the first phase of the great uh, deflation that we have still ahead of us. Um, the Fed began to purchase a great number of Treasuries. They started a quantitative easing even before they called it quantitative easing, in my view. And uh, you can see this uh, in a chart that shows a, a large number of U.S. Treasuries purchased up until the Lehman Brothers decline. There was a short – the Lehman Brothers default. There was a, a quick uh, fall-off in the purchase of Treasuries, but then a massive uh, increase, not only in Treasuries – but an agency-backed paper as well as mortgage-backed securities. And it was an exponential rise, I mean, like nothing we have ever seen before in terms of the Federal Reserve buying U.S. paper, U.S. Uh, bonds. And this, of course, put huge amounts of money into the banking system. Uh, the St. Louis Adjusted Monetary Base grew, grew exponentially from Something around 800 billion dollars to uh, 2. Point, nearly 2.8 trillion dollars uh, in just a very short period of time. But just as in the 1930s, when the money was put into the bank, it did not leak out into the economy. So we have uh, an enormous a number of excess reserves have been uh, pumped into uh, have remained in the banking system. So we see excess reserves north of $1.6 trillion, and that's up from zero before the Lehman Brothers uh, debacle. So we have the same repetition, it seems to me, that we had in the 1930s, and also, as Bertram Folsom pointed out, as uh, Treasury Secretary Morgenthau uh, pointed out in the Great Depression, we have a huge amount of unemployment still. And uh, the policymakers and the government has, has played around with the numbers, but if we use the same accounting criteria as we used in the 1930s, that is able-bodied men and women in the workforce we would be north of 20% right now according to John Williams work in shadow stats so the the policies are not working just as they did not work in the 1930s i would also point out that the rogers raw materials fund which i watch very closely uh the value of that fell off a cliff uh, after the lehman brothers debacle um from just under 6000 to about uh, 20 22 uh 2200 it meandered higher it grew higher as the uh, as as uh, stimulus was pumped into the economy both monetary and fiscal it grew up to a little over 4000 but now it's under 4000 so it has in spite of trillions of dollars that were pumped into the system uh it has not really caught hold uh in the commodity prices have risen but there is uh, this, is, this is one topic I want to talk to both Paul van Eden and Adrian Day about in the next segment uh, the, uh, the commodities prices have risen for sure, but to what extent is that coming from real demand in the global economy, and to what extent is that a function of massive amounts of uh, speculation? by hedge funds and the like that have access to that huge amount of money that was pumped into the banking system. Another thing that we can see that I believe does not bode well for us uh, going forward is that uh, the housing starts uh, remain very, very uh, in a depressed state. Before, going back to 1945, whenever we saw a recession, we would see a very sharp V-shaped recovery in the housing starts, and housing starts are very important because it does really ripple through the economy, a very important part of our economy uh you know if we were like the canadians who export raw materials uh that would be one thing but we're not so a big part of the us economy is the housing sector and whereas before uh this downturn we would uh, bottom out at about 800,000 housing starts this time we are below 600 between 400 and 600 or 400 and 700,000 uh or 400 uh, yeah 400,000 housing starts um, a year and uh, we're meandering around. Instead of a sharp recovery, it's now since the housing problem began. We have been in this, uh, in, uh, in this very depressed state. So the housing sector is not generating uh, growth in the economy as it had in the past. Mortgage delinquencies remain extremely high uh they've come down a bit but that's probably because government has uh, tried to stop them with various techniques in fact uh, the case shiller housing index also seems to have sort of uh, flattened out however gary Schilling, who's been on this show in the past and recently opined that we are going to see something on the order of um, another 20% decline in the housing market prices uh, before before this uh before this um, uh, recession depression whatever you call it is over so we have a huge amounts of debt we have an indebted um, group of Americans for sure large numbers of, of Americans everybody is uh, to a great extent uh, large numbers of people the middle class is in debt they can't get the economy growing very fast again uh, and, uh, but to top it off, we had Lawrence Kotlikoff on this show too, uh, in the future, in the, in the past, and Kotlikoff has talked about how the off-balance sheet uh, numbers are even much, much greater and much more worrisome. Of course, we know an aging population, the demographics in the United States are playing into this. Uh, Kotlikoff's numbers, uh, which were based on, con- on the uh, Congressional Budget Office, are talking about $202 trillion of uh, of future obligations of the United States. One of the questions I also would like to talk to Paul Van Eden and Adrian Day about is whether they think uh, that this enormous amount of promises, these promises that are going to the American public, that have been made to the American public, whether there's not going to be a squeeze between that and military uh, spending because the United States, of course, spends more money on its military than the next 13 countries uh, combined. Uh, so we have a, a huge, huge debt. So the big question in my mind and the one that I think about so often, uh, almost always as I, as I think about the future is how will this major debt situation play out? The 202 trillion dollar debt question, if you believe Kotlikoff's numbers, whatever it is, we know it's a huge number. How will it play out? Will it play out through a deflationary, uh, collapse or will it be a, a hyperinflationary, uh, resolution to this? this issue before uh, things collapse and one of the things that I'm watching very carefully uh and this is an insight that came from Jim Lyles who will be on this show next week uh, was this whole issue of uh, hyper uh, what the whole issue of the dollar and Lyle makes a very good point I believe uh that I- um, if the dollar really collapses then we can look for uh, uh, then he would change what is his sort of deflationary views into a hyper inflationary view indeed uh John Williams who's been on this show that is his case for hyperinflation is that the dollar will simply collapse and we will see um, a massive deflation as as everybody in America has to pay huge amounts of uh of uh, income for uh, of their money for anything that they want to uh, consume. Well, that's certainly one possibility. I, however, sort of lean towards the deflationary side of this argument mostly because of the insights of uh well of John Exter among others also the historical uh Kondratiev cycle notion that you that when you pile on so much debt it has this huge the natural tendency is and the markets really demand a deflation a repudiation of that debt we know what happens when um, when the credit cycle comes to an end Uh, people are forced to sell not necessarily what they want to sell, but they sell what they're able to sell. And we know that there is a scramble away from the less liquid items. Items such as small businesses, real estate, diamonds, gemstones, OTC stocks and the like. Commodities are sold and people scramble down the inverted pyramid to buy gold and Federal Reserve notes. And we saw this happen after Lehman Brothers. We've seen it happen, uh, many times throughout history. Uh, and so there is a natural de- ten- tendency towards deflation. That, against that, of course, the policymakers are looking to uh, try to fool Mother Nature to try to overcome the forces of markets and to inflate our way out of the problem. One thing that we can know from looking back at history is that when these major deflationary uh, credit uh, credit cycles, when these credit, when we come to these to this period of time when we have these major de- uh, credit contractions. As Bob Hoy points out, this is uh, most certainly the sixth major credit deflation we've had in the last 300 years. And in each and every case, uh, we see that the real price of gold rises very, very dramatically. And with that comes a recapitalization of the gold mining sector, uh, which then brings out gold into the economy, which is nature's money, which is what the markets have always demanded uh, as money when it's available, gold and to a lesser extent, certainly silver. And this has, as Hoy points out, in real terms, the gold price has risen very dramatically. We've seen in the 1930s, for sure, home stake did extremely well. There was a huge amount of capital that went into the mining sector during the 1930s. Uh, and I think we're seeing the same thing happen once again, for sure. That said, I believe the equity markets could be in for a real big decline i'm very worried about that which is why i told my subscribers to uh... to liquidate a good number of their equities and to build cash uh... that's those are my uh... feelings about where we're at and the uh, the gold shares could go down with it however if you own gold mining companies that are producing good solid strong profits they will survive the ones i'm most worried about are the uh... Are the junior exploration companies the guys that have to go out and raise money to stay in business to put holes in the ground those guys are going to be in big trouble in my view. And so that is why I am emphasizing uh, gold producers and project generators and, as I said before, my favorite stock, my top pick this year is Sandstorm uh, Gold because uh, those guys are earning, and their earnings should be rising very dramatically. They don't have to go back to the market and raise more capital. And so this could be the best of times and the worst of times, depending on how you're invested So uh, with that said, we have to go to a commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to talk to two very brilliant uh, investors, uh, Adrian Day um, and Paul Van Eden, and I'm sure they will have some great insights also uh, as to how you best prepare for the storm that uh, is, um, I think they'll agree, uh, difficult times in the future. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Paul Van Eden uh, and Adrian Day.
2: America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
5: In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains, precious metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the well green platinum group metals, nickel, and copper property. A large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit prophecyplat.com. Avino
2: Silver and Gold Mines is a low-cost, high-grade producer with 27 years of operating experience. In 2012, Avino resumed production at its historic Avino property and plans to be a multi-million ounce silver producer in 3 years. Avino is debt-free, well-funded, and has Sprott as its largest shareholder. Avino recently listed on the NYSE Amex exchange trading as ASM. Visit Avino online at www.avino.com. That's A V I N O.com. America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
3: You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program.
4: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time on this show, Paul Van Eden. He is the president of uh, Cranberry Capital, Inc., and also uh, Adrian Day, will be uh, he 's joining Paul and myself, uh, so we 'll have uh, the three of us will be discussing some of the most important issues I think that uh, we all have to contend with these days in investing uh, a little background on Paul since this is his first time here, as I say he is with cranberry capital that 's a private Canadian holding company uh, he began his career in the financial uh, resource sector as a stockbroker with Rick Rule. Those of you uh, who listen to this show regularly are familiar with Rick. He's been on a number of times. Rick's uh, Global uh, Resource Investments Limited is where Paul worked uh, in 1996. Uh, he has been active uh, in financing mineral exploration companies and analyzing markets ever since then. Uh, he is well known for his work on the relationship between the gold price, inflation, and currency markets and his model for determining the fair value of gold was able to predict both the run up in the gold price to over 1000 an ounce uh, between 2001 and 2008, and its subsequent decline to around $750. Uh, so we're going to want to ask Paul for sure where he thinks gold is heading now on a day when it is uh, down some $33, as I look at the screen right now. Uh, he also created a, a measure called the Actual Money Supply. Uh, to monitor the real rate of inflation, uh, AMS uh, for short is crucial. To uh, Paul says and uh, to analyze inflation-adjusted changes in prices and to c- calculate the real return on investments. And uh, Adrian has been with us. Uh, you can get his uh, his bio for sure uh, by going to our website at Voice America, um, where this show is uh, is aired. So welcome both of you to uh, Turning Hard Times into Good Times, Paul and Adrian.
6: Thank you, Jay. Thank you, Jay.
4: Good to have both of you, uh, Paul. Good to have you for the first time, uh, Adrian. I'd like to. I know that you've, you're well known, um, and I didn't read your bio. So, for those that uh, have not heard you before, you are very well known for investing internationally. So, I'd like to ask you, and I'd like to start off the conversation by asking you about your view on China. We've had uh, Gordon Chang on this show recently. And Gordon is uh, pretty bearish on China. He says that China's political system is wrought with a huge amount of corruption and growing levels of repression, uh, and he thinks that there could be a lot of trouble there uh, in the economy, or I guess he he believes the political repression is is resulting from economic woes. Uh, What is your sense of China's future, both economically and politically, Adrian?
7: Well, that's a huge question, obviously, and I know we're going to open it up, but... um, I think one of the things we have to do is sort of define define the question a little bit. What what exactly is the difference between the bull and the bears? You know, if the question is uh is China's economy slowing, there's no doubt it is. Uh is the question um, uh is there a risk in China at some point of political upheaval, social upheaval? And I, I think that I think it would almost be surprising if there were not. Mm-hmm. But If the question is, are we expecting an economic um, collapse or a hard landing in the next uh, year or two, I would have to say that I don't see that right now. Um, You you know, I mean, we all know that the economy, the target for this year is 7.5%. That's a reduced target, 7.5% GDP growth. uh, That's down from over 9% last year. Um, But let's face it, that's still pretty strong growth, kind of growth that any, any Western country would be uh, would, could only dream of, at a time when inflation is under 5% and, and dropping. So I'm not, and I don't think anyone is a Pollyanna on China. There are problems, no doubt, and we can talk about those later, but but I don't see that China's economy um, is collapsing or heading for a hard landing anytime soon.
4: Mm-hmm. Adrian how real do you think uh, and how much credence do you put in the numbers uh, that come out from China I mean I'm I'm not sure that I put a lot of credence in in our numbers here in the US but,
7: but to <laughs> I was what extent say uh, do you think as much credence as I put in growth is real? as inflation numbers for example mm-hmm. um, that's that's a little bit of a joke there but um, uh, let's put it this way I think one can have there's no question as uh, there's discrepancies in the numbers when you add up all the local local numbers and add them up, they they differ from what the state uh, the central government is putting out. Um, but yeah, those are sort of problems inherent in any in any government statistics, and particularly government statistics in a developing country. I'm sure a lot of these local regions in China didn't used to put out any kind of GDP numbers uh, five or ten years ago. So it's mm-hmm. a new exercise for them. But I think if we compare one year with the other. I, I think that gives us a fairly accurate assessment of the direction at any rate. Uh, and certainly I don't think they're so wildly off, but, um, you know, 9% GDP growth, uh, you know, it might be 85 it might mm-hmm. be 95 but it's certainly not, uh, not a recession. And one mm-hmm. can tell that just by looking, you know, by going to China and, and, and looking.
4: Mm-hmm. Paul, uh, can we tell just by going to China and looking? What are, what are your thoughts about China?
6: I think if we go to China and look around, we're going to come away with a lot of differing opinions. Mm -hmm. Um, I spent uh, several years going to Dubai, um, uh, once a year, going to Dubai for a conference. And the people in Dubai were very proud of the fact that, that, in their minds, they had the largest density of construction cranes in the world in Dubai. And they were very proud of the fact that Dubai's economy was growing so rapidly based on residential, uh, commercial and residential real estate expansion. Mm-hmm. Um, in Dubai, they were building whole cities, uh, in, on the theory that if they build them, the people will come. Um, in Dubai, when that party came to an end, uh, real estate prices fell by about 70%. That's seven zero. 0 mm-hmm. Um, I think that Dubai was kind of like a mini window in what's possible in China. I just don't think China has quite gone over the hump yet, although I having said that, I think China is on the downtrend of that hump now, but I don't think that they're near the end of it. It's probably more accurate. Really, certain real estate prices in China have started to come down, and this is very, very problematic for China because... Uh, I don't know if you're aware, but approximately 12% of China's GDP is residential real estate investment, not Mm -hmm. all real estate, just residential real estate investments, about 12% of China's GDP. So if that number starts to go down, not only does it drag on GDP, but it causes huge problems for the people in China who have invested in these real estate projects. Mm -hmm. And uh, part of the problem with the real estate investment in China is that Uh, You know, as in Dubai, they built cities, Mm -hmm. but they're empty. Mm -hmm. There's nobody living in them, and nobody can afford to live in them, because the the real estate prices, whether they're purchase costs for these apartments and condos or rental rates for these apartments and condos, are, you know, first world rates. But Mm -hmm. they're not built in a country which can afford that. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a massive real estate correction coming in China Mm -hmm. on the scale of Dubai. And I think as that unfolds, it's going to cause numerous really difficult problems for the government of China, who are not only going to have to cope with producing lower GDP numbers and struggling with how to keep the economy growing, but they're going to be struggling with how to keep the people happy. Uh, there are people in China who are going to lose very, very significant portions of their net worth in terms of these real estate investments as they go from being price-controlled, and when I mean price-controlled here, I'm talking about new developments being sold at whatever the developer thinks he can sell them at, as mm-hmm. opposed to what the true value of these things are, and market price, which is what these real estate developments are going to exchange ownership for on uh, the basis of supply and demand. Mm -hmm. There's an enormous amount of supply out there of these things right now. There's Mm -hmm. not very much demand, given their prices. Could
7: I just jump in there,
4: Jay, maybe? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, go ahead, Um, Adrian.
7: I I don't actually disagree with a lot of what Paul says. Mm -hmm. Um, No question. There's excess inventory. And I mean, when we say excess inventory, we're talking extremely excess inventory. And and no, no doubt about that. And no doubt also the prices are heading down. I think where I would differ from, Paul, is in the assessment of just what that means for the economy. No question. People who've bought houses and see the prices go down are hurt and they're not happy. And we've already seen indications of that already. But housing is not central to the Chinese financial market the way that housing or construction, let's say, was central to Dubai. Um, I mean, what else is there in Dubai other than camels and sand? I'm exaggerating. But um, housing is not central to the Chinese economy the way the financial system, the way it was to the U.S. uh, before the credit collapse. Most importantly, most significantly, is that in China, more of the buyers tend to be wealthier than, say, in the U.S., uh, and secondly, more of them pay cash or very, or, or very low, um, very low margin requirements. As you know, there's a legal requirement in China for first-time buyers to put down 30% and for second home buyers to pay 100%. Mm-hmm. So there's no leverage on second homes. So I think the damage is going to be less. I'm not pretending there won't be damage, but the damage is going to be less than the damage, say, to the U.S. financial system from, from our housing collapse.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's
6: certainly one of the, on the defenses. Show, so that I we, mean, we should go mind. with where with the conversation goes. Adrian makes an excellent point that a lot of the – real estate transactions in, in China um, are, are cash-based. Th- this, by the way, is true of, of a lot of uh, developing countries where more, more of the uh, economic transactions are based on cash. But one major difference that this means is that, for example, in the U.S., when the real estate, comar- when the real estate market collapsed, it was ultimately the banks and the, and the institutional investors that got left holding the bag, Mm -hmm. and the government bailed them out, too big to fail. Remember that? Sure. What -hmm. if in the U.S. people didn't use mortgages, and we went through exactly the same experience in the U.S. as what we did, except that we didn't use mortgages? Do you think the government would have bailed out all those individuals who bought houses they couldn't afford? Mm. I suspect not, and that's what's going to happen in China. These guys are not going to get bailed out, which means that it is the actual people, who were millionaires. no not, not millionaires any longer, because all their wealth evaporated when the real estate bubble collapsed. Mm-hmm. That's where the capital destruction is going to come from. And what that does, it's a much purer uh, model, if you will, of an economy. And, and what it will illustrate is the following, that if you have malinvestment, what I mean by that, if you spend money constructing things that are not needed in the economy, you are wasting capital in a very substantial way. And that's what happened in Dubai. That's what happened in China. That is what happened in the U.S. The difference is in the U.S., that destruction of capital was born at the end of the day by the population who had to bail out the financial system. Mm -hmm. In Dubai and China, that destruction of capital is in the case of Dubai and will be in the case of China born by the people who invested the capital. And that's going to cause problems for China in a very different way because in the U.S. and Europe, we're smoothing everything over. Everybody is miserable and unhappy, but nobody is genuinely upset. I mean, nobody's mm-hmm. lifestyle changed here. When I say nobody, I mean, a lot of people's lifestyles changed. that's true, but not in the same scale as when you have to take they loss, a hundred percent of the mistake that you made in the investment. Mm-hmm. That's a big difference between China and the United States. Adrian, I think you hit on a very important aspect there.
7: Well, mm-hmm. I, I think what you're saying is true. Uh, that's an interesting point, Paul, very interesting, but, you know, I hadn't fully considered. But I think the ramifications of that are perhaps more likely to be social or as likely to be social uh, certainly than they are financial. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at least um, the, then they will affect the financial system, uh, because that's one of the points I made. The banks have not lent so much, and, and you know that's that's part of what you're saying. But there may well be some important social ramifications.
6: Yes, mm-hmm. and I and 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 I don't want to go out and make too much of a, of an issue out of the social ramifications. But I think in the case of China, there is a real risk that the social ramifications of what has occurred and as it unfolds is going to be very problematic for the Chinese government and 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 not to be dismissed lightly but while we're on the case of the of the Chinese banks Adrian I don't know if you recall some time ago and I don't know how long it was but I'm sure you and I had conversations about this and it may be almost 10 years ago because time goes so fast um, there was some data that came out of China that suggested that of the of the three largest Chinese commercial banks, Up to approximately 50% of their loans were non-performing. Right. Remember that. It was about 10 years ago. But that's changed. But go on. Yes. Okay, that's exactly the point. Here's how it changed. Now I don't really, no, let's just put this in context, okay? In Europe or the United States or places like this, if banks have, you know, 3 or 3% or more, like let's say 5% non-performing loans, all hell breaks loose. I mean, that's a big number. 5% five percent non-performing loans in China they had fifty percent five zero percent non-performing loans and I recall I'm mean, going this is now anecdotal but I recall reading in a comment somewhere when they interviewed uh, one of the bankers and I forget if it was a commercial banker or a central banker in China about this and they said well yeah they're fixing the problem they're making more loans which means that <laughs> as a percentage of the loan book the non-performing loans is going down. The problem was that they weren't making new loans of higher quality. They were making new loans of exactly the same quality. And they had a massive non-performing loan problem. As Adrian just mentioned, it's different now. Mm -hmm. What's different now is that they took all those non-performing loans off balance sheet. They they learned from the U.S. They took them all. They put them in a corporation. The corporation issued new debts to the bank. They used repayments of some of the loans to pay interest on other loans back to the banks classical Ponzi scheme, and all of a sudden, those non-performing loans all went away. Mm-hmm. When, those, when those off-balance sheet transactions matured, I think they roll over about every 10 years, as they matured, they just rolled them over into new off-balance sheet corporations. So those non-performing loans in China's banking system still exist. They're just off-balance sheet. We all know what happens when that comes home to roost.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, I noticed- uh, As the
6: real estate market in China declines and continues to decline, the, the banks in China were involved in a lot of that. Not to the same extent perhaps as in the United States with our real estate crisis, but they're very involved in the Chinese real estate construction boom through various avenues. That's going to add to the woes of the Chinese banking system, and the Chinese banking system is under severe stress and will come under substantially more stress. Now, China will solve that problem most likely exactly the same way as the United States solved its problem and that Europe is going to solve its problem, which is by, you know, the central bank coming in and writing checks. But there are, you know, I I think China is in much worse shape and has much more pressing problems perhaps, than some some others may believe. At least mm-hmm. that's my opinion.
4: Well, that's your opinion. Uh, Adrian, anything
6: you would like to come back with on that? I, I noticed there,
4: Dr. Jim Walker, who we've had on this show, talked about and did a documentary on the number of vacant apartments in China, but I don't really know relative to the size of that country how meaningful it was. It's something like 64 million vacant apartments. Now, it seems to me, Paul, you talked about malinvestment. When you have a planned economy, when, when houses and, and when uh, cities are built on the basis of some political whim or some planning uh, b- instead of simultaneous market decisions that are made by millions of people but a handful of people instead, it seems to me this is what you can kind of expect. Uh, but I guess, Adrian, what does this have to do then with you know, I don't know, maybe you want to come back and, and address some of the points that well, Paul made. yet? just, just very quickly. Yeah, I, again,
7: I, there's there's no question as excess inventory of, of of housing in China. No, no, no question about that. And um, you know, Chinese people are in some ways Chinese as investors are similar to us as investors. They like to buy things when they're going up, and you know, when things start to come down and prices have started to come down, um, you, you know, they suddenly stop buying, but. You know, empty cities in China are analogous to bridges to nowhere in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all countries have that kind of thing. China just at an earlier stage of development. And I think, if I may, this is where I, I would finish. And maybe Paul has something. You know, I tend to look at things in. A, yeah, I'm a historian by training. I tend to look at things in a in a, in a long historical uh, 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 from mm-hmm. from a long historical point of view. And what China's doing now is China's going from a a very backward rural economy to uh, an industrialized, urbanized, um, more modern global economy. That sort of process takes time, and with it comes disruptions and upheavals, both economic, financial, and social. And when you think of what happened with... The United States from 1875 to 1914, or you think of what happened with Britain from the end of the Napoleonic War to uh, the middle of the century when the countries were industrializing and urbanizing, we had riots, we had bank failures, we had bank runs, we had... of of, uh, temporary famines. We had soldiers shooting demonstrators in the streets. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I say we, I'm talking about both Britain and the U.S. Mm -hmm. These things are are sort of normal. uh, When I say normal, they are to be expected with the upheaval that comes from the development and industrialization of a a country, from a rural economy Mm -hmm. to an industrial economy. And China being so large... So diverse, so spread out, is going to have, we would be foolish to expect that China did not have its full share of those kind of problems. And to go, if you like, from the sublime, I won't say ridiculous, but, you know, I think of all the fuss that was made when China had that high-speed, high-speed rail crash recently, 40 people were killed. Was it 40 or 35? Mm -hmm. Not dismissing the effect of that on those particular 40 people. But, uh, you know, there was a train crash in Poland last week that killed more people. There was a train crash in England last, last year that killed more people. Um, but those weren't, they were headlines locally, but they weren't sort of global headlines. But somehow the fact that China's high-speed rail crash had a crash makes people say, oh, the country's developing too fast, the country mm-hmm. can't... Uh, you know,
4: isn't advanced enough to do this kind
7: of thing, which is, you know, just plain nonsense. It it goes with the territory.
4: Well, Paul, uh, we're, g- we're going to have to go to a commercial break in a few minutes, but, but Paul, would you possibly concede to, to Adrian that in the long run, China is on a growth path uh, relative, let's say, to the West, but in the short run uh, there could be some huge problems that, that could also have ripple effects on the Western world and our markets as well.
6: No, I don't have to concede to Adrian. I just agree with Adrian. Mm-hmm. I think he's, he's correctly, uh, he's absolutely correct in, uh-huh. in the examples that he mentioned. I mean, a train crash in China is no different than a train crash anywhere else. I mean, I don't believe China is is developing too fast in the sense that, you know, they shouldn't be building these high-speed trains. I think they should. It's fantastic. They have the technology. They have the know-how. They can do it. Um I think where, where, where I think China is on dangerous grounds is the centrally planned economy and the way that they account GDP. Which, if mm-hmm. we have time, we can get back into it. But they they calculate GDP differently than the United States or Europe calculates GDP, mm-hmm. and that has a significant influence on in what GDP really is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I absolutely agree with Adrian that that China's you know development is real. Um, you know, China went um, into isolation many hundreds of years ago, not tens of years, hundreds of years ago. And and China is just now coming out of that policy of isolation. And I think China is on a hundred-year bull market. Um, So I think the future for China and for the Chinese people is extremely bright. Mm -hmm. But as Adrian mentioned, these things are never smooth sailing. I just think that we are on the cusp of one of these upheavals that Adrian mentioned that's mm-hmm. going to be a little tougher for the Chinese people perhaps in the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we went through it in the United States. Europe is busy going through it. I think China's going to go through it. And it's nothing, you know, in the grand scheme of things, if you're a historian looking at, at, at centuries, this is nothing. But Yeah, well, that's that's, it, a,
4: that's a very good point. I think, uh, Adrian, you made that point that, in fact, you you tend to look at long-term trends. But, of course, um, it was Lord Keynes that said, "In the long run, we're all dead." I guess he was the one that made that saying famous. And uh, as a 65-year-old guy, that's becoming a more real statement to me all the time. We have to worry about the markets today and how we're going to make money and how we're going to put food on the table. And one of the uh, certainly one of the connecting points here that I'd like to discuss uh, at the other side of the hour is what effect is what's, what's going on in China have to do in the United States and and beginning with the Chinese investments around the world uh in the treasury markets and so forth. Uh I think we maybe have a couple of minutes. Maybe we could just get started in this Adrian maybe you would like to uh talk about that. To what extent is China buying or not buying US treasuries? Do you have an opinion on that?
7: Well, it's not an opinion. I mean, it's fact. They're buying they're buying a lot fewer treasuries uh you know in the last 12 months than they have in previous 12 months and in fact the last uh 3 months they've been net sellers. Marginal sellers. You know, mm-hmm. China's problem relates to, you know, that old saying about the bank. You know, if I owe the bank a uh, million dollars I've got a, and I can't repay is my problem. If I owe them a billion dollars and can't repay, it's their problem. China has too many treasuries, too many US dollars. And they can't you know, it clearly can't offload them. We all know this. What China's trying to do is to reduce the percentage of dollars in its in its holdings. By buying other things slowly, gradually, or not so slowly, but without offloading their dollars china 's percent the percentage of u s dollars in china 's reserves has declined from seventy three percent a decade ago to just fifty four percent right now that 's a huge decline in in relative size, but over that same period. In absolute terms, the number of dollars they, they hold has, has gone up tremendously. Mm-hmm. So The 50% of dollars they hold today is, is still an increase over what they held a year and two and three ago. They're mm-hmm. just not selling, but they're just not
4: buying. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, uh, what are they buying is the big question if they're not buying treasuries, and, and to what extent this, uh, this uh, absence of Chinese buying in the U.S. is affecting uh, Mr. Bernanke's uh, monetary printing printing of dollars is a question, of course, we need to think about. We're going to have to go to break right now. We're going to go to the top of the hour commercial break. And when we come back, I want to ask you, Paul, where you think the interest rates are going, the long rate. We had Dr. Gary Schilling on the show recently telling us that rates would remain low on the long end of the yield curve. He's a deflationist. But we want to pick up on this thought about the connection between China. what's going on in China and uh, and what's going on in the U.S. Uh, treasury markets. Uh, don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with Paul Van Eden and Adrian Day.
2: business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network
1: eurasian minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper the company currently has over 140 properties on four continents our joint venture partners have committed to spend over 15 million dollars on eurasian minerals projects in 2012 the company maintains a tight share structure a low cash burn rate and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals.
5: In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains, precious metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the well-green Platinum Group metals, nickel, and copper property. A large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit prophecyplat.com.